Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Air Power Hour. Tech Sergeant Check here, and on this episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with the commander of the 348th Line Officer Recruiting Squadron, Lieutenant Colonel Alexei Kambalov. Lieutenant Colonel Kambalov was born in Moscow, Russia, and moved to the United States when he was 11 years old. He graduated from college with a degree in engineering and decided to join the Air Force as a biomedical troop. After meeting his wife on the enlisted side of the Air Force, Lieutenant Colonel Kambalov transitioned to become an officer. In this episode, we discuss his 20 years of faithful service and the significant meaning behind a round metal object. So, let's get into it. Hey, Sergeant Check. Hey, it's Lieutenant Colonel Knight, commander of the 347th Recruiting Squadron. Welcome to the show. Hi, do you mind if I cut in here for a second? Absolutely not. Go right ahead. So we just had some late breaking news um, that I wanted to pop in and share with our listeners. So Lieutenant Colonel Kambalov was just selected for full bird colonel. Wow. He was just announced yesterday as AFRS's newest colonel select. So I wanted to pop in and congratulate AK on this huge accomplishment and let him know how, how happy I am for him and how proud his team members are for his accomplishment. That's amazing. Absolutely. All right. Well, without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Lieutenant Colonel Alexei Kamblov. To all units, proceed to your post assignment. All units, proceed to your post assignment. Welcome to the Air Power Hour. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Air Power Hour. I'm the host, Tech Sergeant Check here, and today I am joined by Lieutenant Colonel Alexei Kambalov. Lieutenant Colonel Kambalov, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a, a pleasure and a privilege to be here. I've been looking forward to this for a while now. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. I know that the commander has said nothing but great things about you, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Knight. And uh, just to get you on the schedule and just the kind of the fact that you were up here in the area for the week, uh, everything worked out. So it's awesome. Definitely. And um, uh, Colonel Knight, uh, for, for my part, she is one of my absolute favorite people of all time. Uh, I don't know. I think I know only one other person that's uh, who is as cheerful as she is at all times. Yeah, it is. I can tell you firsthand, it is an absolute blessing to have a commander like that because she lifts the spirits of the squadron, um, just having that cheerful attitude. So um, coming from an enlisted person, uh, having a, a leader like that is is definitely beneficial. But anyways, we are here uh, to sit down and listen to Lieutenant Colonel Alexei Kambalov's story. So what I like to do is start out from the beginning. How long have you been serving in the Air Force? I just celebrated my 20th anniversary last November. So working wow. on year number 21. Wow. Well, congratulations. 20 years. That is Thank amazing. You. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it was over in an eye blink. Yeah. I can't believe it's, uh, it's been over 20 years already. It's, it's really crazy to think about how quickly time goes when you're serving. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I know that, um, deployments or basic training. Uh, one of the things I like to say is, uh, the days feel like weeks, but the weeks feel like days. And I almost kind of feel like that, that the latter portion of that feels like, uh, your air force career. Because the years just go by so fast. Mm -hmm. I do know what you mean about basic training because while I know it was six weeks long uh, when I went through it, I know it was six weeks long and 
each day in it seemed like it would never end and you never had enough sleep and you're always had people yelling at you and like, man, this sucks. When's it going to be over? But looking back on it now, I remember individual scenes, individual fragments, but I couldn't account for all six weeks. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it just flew by. Yeah, that, that is wild that, how that happens. But you're so you're so mentally like challenged and, and pinpointed and and it's very um, you're, you're kind of just solely focused on just getting to the end. Mm-hmm. So uh, I definitely understand where you're coming from. So with that being said, uh, you hit 20 years. So 20 years ago, um, when did you decide that the Air Force was going to be your journey? Not until after I was already in the Air Force. Okay. And uh, let me uh, uh, l- 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 let me clarify that answer a little bit. I uh, came to America uh, from from uh, from the Soviet Union at the time. So I was born in in Moscow. My whole family came over. Um, we settled in the New York area. I went to high school in, here in America. I went to college in North Carolina. Um, got my master's degree actually. Wow. Uh, I studied engineering. And I was grad getting in the last year of my master's degree program was when 9-11 happened. Okay. And I kind of caused me to pause and look around and really think about what am I, what is it, what is it that I'm going to be doing with my life? Yeah. Uh, and the, the track that I was on, you know, the default sort of pathway was you're going to join some kind of engineering company, you know, biomedical engineering in case you're going to work for GE healthcare, you're going to work for Siemens or a company like that. Yeah. Uh, just designing devices and, and that'll be my life. And, uh, I couldn't really picture myself doing that and, being fulfilled by it. Yeah. Uh, and then fortuitously, the Air Force ROTC detachment that was there on our campus sent out a message to all the engineering students uh, saying, hey, why don't you come by and take the AFOQT, the Air Force Officer Qualifying uh, Qualification Test. That's the, the the big test that determines whether or not you're well-suited to being an officer in general and a specific kind of officer in particular, like a pilot or an yeah. engineer, it's a whatever. Um so kind of on a whim, I went and took the test and scored fairly well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I couldn't go any further because I didn't have U.S. citizenship at the time. Uh-huh. I was still a Russian citizen. Um, but that planted the the bug in my head saying, Air Force, Air Force might, might, might be that purpose that you're looking for, might be that direction that you're looking for. Uh, so when I, uh, when I graduated um, in the spring of 2002, uh, I was already talking to an Air Force recruiter, uh, and they confirmed what the ROTC uh, instructors had told me, which is I can't be an officer because I don't have U.S. citizenship. Yeah. So I said, okay, well, then I'll, I'll enlist in the Air Force. Wow. Uh, and I and, uh, joined the Air Force. I became a, uh, a 4A2, a biomedical uh, equipment maintenance technician. Okay. Uh, BMET as uh, what we call ourselves. Uh, and, uh, served for the first few years as a BMET. Later on, I got U.S. citizenship. I applied for OTS and, uh, became commissioned as an officer, but it wasn't until I was serving as a BMET that I realized, you know, this is it. This is, yeah. this is that direction. This is that meaning in my life that I kind of was lacking when I was just contemplating being a professional engineer for the rest of my life. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, that's when I realized I'm, I'm going to stay. That's awesome. So it was when you were an enlisted personnel. Oh, correct. Nice. Now, 
did you have you enlisted did you enlist with the sole purpose of my goal is to become an officer to get my citizenship and become an officer no uh and i, I was shaking my head but i realized um no one's <laughs> going to be able to hear that uh no uh i knew that officer was on the horizon for me somewhere i knew that in order to get there i would have to have u.s citizenship yeah um, pretty much all the other boxes were checked by that point but no, I definitely did not enlist for the purpose of becoming an officer. Nice. Uh, I enlisted and I um, purposefully chose that career field, which is one of the tougher career fields to qualify for. I also took the, the ASVAB, the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery, the test that determines which enlisted career fields you qualify for. Um, I pretty much qualified for all the fields out there, yeah. but I wanted to take the field that would leverage my engineering education. I was a biomedical engineer, so biomedical equipment maintenance translated very naturally from that. Uh, and I derived a great amount of job satisfaction and personal fulfillment from being a BMAT. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so no, it, it wasn't just a stepping stone. Nice. Uh, and, you know, if things had been otherwise, I'd be a BMAT, a career BMAT right now and yeah. be happy doing it. Yeah. I mean, that you just, you got a little taste of, of what it's like to be in the United States Air Force and, mm -hmm. and, uh, finding that purpose is amazing. Um, you know, so that, that's awesome to hear. Where were you, uh, initially stationed, uh, when you became a biomed? I joined the Air Force and I saw Texas. I went to, uh, Lackland Air Force Base, uh, in San Antonio, Texas for basic training. Mm -hmm. Uh, then I went to Shepard Air Force Base a couple of hours north in Wichita Falls, Texas for my, uh, technical training, which yeah. is where I actually learned how to become a BMAT. And let me tell you, 10 months as a, as a pipeline student in, on Shepard Air Force Base, that's, you know, that, that's the life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in, uh, glorious Wichita Falls, Texas. Uh, I, I do look back on it fondly, but, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's not, it was notorious for a reason. Yeah. Uh, now sure. all medical training now is uh, back in San Antonio actually. So if anybody joins us at BMET now, they're going to spend their entire first year in the air force nice. in, Sa in San Antonio. And then I went right back to San Antonio for my first duty assignment. Cause I was at Wilford hall. Okay. Then Wilford hall medical center on Lackland air force base. It is since, um, uh, that building was shut down. That was now an ambulatory care center, part of the greater San Antonio military medical center. Nice. So how was your first duty station as a, a biomed? How, you know, what were you, what was your thought process going into it? Um, you, you're brand new to the air force and, uh, you know, when you, when you started out this journey, you know, you said that it solidified you as this is what I want to do. Um, how did it do that? Why did it, why did you solidify that feeling? So when I was in tech school, uh, all the other BMETs were graduating my class. They were getting their orders, and you know some of them are going to. One was going to Rhein-Main, Germany, which is a, a it's an air for, uh, air base that has since been shut down. You know they're going to Japan. They're going to all these exciting places, and I thought, man, you 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 lucky bums, <laughs> uh, how come uh, how come I'm going back to Lackland and you guys are going to you know Germany and Hawaii yeah. and Japan. Uh, but, uh, Lackland was actually a blessing in disguise. Uh, it is what's known as, um, or at least it was, uh, what's known as a Merck, uh, medical equipment repair center. So it is the big hub that serves, uh, a number of the smaller, uh, nearby, uh, uh, medical, um, uh, me medical installations. Nice. So Lackland, uh, Wilford Hall had a huge BMAT shop. 
I'm talking about dozens of people, dozens of VMATs. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, some base, some bases you go to might have three. Wow. Uh, so uh, the fact that I was able to uh, serve with so many other BMETs, study under so many experienced BMETs, military and civilian, because a lot of them were civilian, um, pre, you know, previously military, retired, and stayed on as civilian BMETs there. Uh, I got to work on the full range of equipment that we had in the inventory at the time, you know, everything from sterilizers to, you know, infusion pumps to x-ray machines, uh, basically all of the uh, the full range of medical equipment. So very, uh, uh, very enhancing in a professional sense, because right there in my first assignment, I was able to knock out a lot of the upgrade training, yeah. exposure to everything. And also the fact that there were so many other BMETs there uh, and, and just the facility itself, the the medical center. It was a medical wing, unlike medical most other uh, Air Force uh, medical facilities, which are groups. So mm-hmm. wing is the next level up. It was huge. There were hundreds of people there. Yeah, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe over a thousand. Uh, don't quote me on that. <laughs> but there were so many other medics there for me to interact with and learn from and experience that uh, camaraderie and really see what the what the Air Force was about. And, you know, kind of helped me to realize this is a community I want to be a part of. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you talk about a nice, fresh breath of experience throughout that time. And then and then you're right, learning from from good mentors and, and having a big group of people, it's it's a really cool feeling. It's that one that is unique to the Air Force and, and military in general is that you kind of become part of a family. And then when you get to a place like, like Wilford Hall where it's a, it's a wing, where there's tons of different airmen and different aspects of their career and, and, and lives, uh, you kind of just m- mold together and become one unit and you work uh, super efficiently. Is, is It's a really good feeling. And, and I can definitely understand why it was at that point where you're like, yeah, this is this is definitely something I could do and, uh, and do it with a purpose. So that's awesome. One of the uh, one one of the obstacles um, that we encounter sometimes is you know people look at the you know the military pay scales they're all published right so yeah you can um, you know look up the 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 grade the pay grade uh, you know the ranking of uh, you know pick your rank staff sergeant and you know exactly how much that person earns every month um, to which my counter argument is if your goal in life is to make money don't join the military. Yeah. The, 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 the two are just not, comp, not compatible goals. <laughs> uh, you don't join the military because you want to make a ton of money and drive a fancy car and, you know, have a big house. Mm-hmm. Uh, you join the military because you want to be a part of that greater community. Yeah. Uh, you want to find that meaning. You want to be able to look in the mirror at the end of every day and say, you know, I spent all day today doing something that mattered. I'm a professional airman. Um, you know, I wasn't just, slinging sandwiches at a, at a subway and no disrespect to subway. But, uh, you know, I was, I was part of a greater whole. I was Mm -hmm. part of something bigger than myself. It's, you know, quite plainly, it, it it gave me direction. It gave me meaning, uh, direction, which had been lacking. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't, it it, it wasn't the money. No. Yeah. And when I was a recruiter, I would always, I would always sit down with my applicants or, or individuals that I'd be talking to that potentially, you know, could join. And I would, I would say no, no disrespect to any other career fields out there, but as an example, if if I walk into a store or a subway and there are civilians there and I'm in uniform, who do you think, I would ask them, i say, who do you think they would thank for their service? 
the guy working behind the counter at serving them a sandwich or the guy in the, the Air Force uniform. And that is part of it. You know, we are an elite group. It's a it's service to our country. Uh, it's the pride of wearing the uniform. Uh, so we are highly coveted. And uh, you're right. It's not it's not for the money. Um, we are selfless. And, uh, you know, we are serving our country with with pride. So it's definitely a good feeling uh, when you put the uniform on. You uh, uh, you mentioned the pride in wearing the uniform, and I hope you don't mind if I take a slight detour to explain yeah. why I was a little bit late today. Uh, I'm wearing um, those who can't see us. I'm uh, uh, I'm wearing my uh, what's called uh, service uniform, my blues. Um, and uh, if you remember the movie A Few Good Men, you know Tom Cruise's character says nobody likes the whites. Yeah. Uh, so there are some some folks who are not fond of wearing the blues. Uh, it forces you to you know, put your shoulders back, walk straight, you know, keep your back straight. Uh, they're difficult to maintain. You got to iron them. You got to keep them clean. But man, the pride of being able to wear that uniform. And uh, the reason I'm late today is I was picking up my rental car in Chicago and there were, uh, there were two people at the, at the Hertz rental counter, um, you know, a young man and a young, young woman. And they asked me, are you in the Air Force? I said, yes, I am. I, uh, matter of fact, I am in the Air Force, and I told them about the conference that I just uh, finished attending, how the Air Force paid for me to attend this conference because they were investing in me, in developing yeah. me as a professional uh, in my particular specialty. Uh, and that, um, by the way, I said, we're hiring. And then I spent yeah. the next 45 minutes talking to them about the Air Force. That's and awesome. ter- turns out, you know, the, the man had previously applied with the Navy, but, uh, you know, it never went anywhere because I think he had some surgery on his shoulder. And, uh, and the lady had taken an ASVAB pretest, but she took it cold and she didn't do really well. And so that never went anywhere. And I talked to them, you know, like, hey, you can prep for the ASVAB and you can, um, you know, you can take it and you'd be surprised. You, you, you're probably going to do better. And uh, the young, young, man, young man, I told him, yeah, having surgery on your shoulder isn't necessarily disqualifying. Yeah. You know, don't let anybody tell you it's disqualifying. Let a doctor say that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had a fairly extensive conversation. So I apologize for being late, but I was I was doing my job as a recruiter. Yeah, exactly. No, we, uh, you know, here at the 347th Recruiting Squadron, we talk about uh, 24-7, um, you know, readiness. You know, we are we are we are on the clock 24-7. Um, we're always doing our job as recruiters, um, and it doesn't have to be during work hours, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you're out there and you're in uniform or you're w- just wearing an Air Force T-shirt, you know, if somebody comes up and asks you, you, you know, you take the time out and, and you, you speak with them. Um, because I think that we're doing the, the civilians in this area a disservice if we don't uh, share what we have to offer. So... No, no, no worries about being late. That's that. That's awesome to hear. Um, that's part of the reason why I think this podcast is such is so valuable is because it's demystifying the military. Yeah, uh, we spent a really good uh, portion of the last two decades kind of uh, elevating the military, but I think maybe also alienating ourselves a little bit from the um, from the civilian population and uh, letting people know that we are not. We're not, you know, day walkers who walk, walk among them, but you know, they're we're we're some other some some other species or anything like that. We're not brainwashed robots. We're not soulless killers. We're the military is made up of everyday Americans, you know, just like all the you know anybody you might pass on the street. Uh, breaking that barrier 
uh, helping people to become familiar with us and see us interacting with them just like regular people. Yeah. Uh, you know, who knew? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> breaks down that barrier. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And um, just hearing the stories of, of different airmen and guardians, because not not two stories are alike. You know, I've never had an individual who was born in Moscow um, and is now serving uh, in the United States Air Force with 20 years of dedicated service. Um, it, it's completely different. And, and who knows? There could be another individual out here that was born in Russia or born in another country who thought that, well, I can't join because I'm not a citizen. And, you know, it's not possible. Um, and they could hear this story and, and you could change someone's lives. So that, that yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to do here at the Air Power Hour. And uh, again, I'm just glad I could have you on. And I'm also glad I could have you on because you mentioned that you started out enlisted mm -hmm. and then now you're an officer because you are a lieutenant colonel. So you are the first guest on the Air Power Hour that has done both sides, enlisted and officer. So that being said, at what point in your enlisted career did you side that decide that you were going to pursue the officer side? I would say don't don't ask me for career advice because none of my career moves have been planned ahead of time, <laughs> more than about six months ahead of time. Wow. Uh, really, every step of the way, every move that I've made, uh, starting with joining the Air Force itself, uh, kind of came about as me seeing an opportunity and saying to myself, you know what, that sounds really interesting. I'm going to give that a try. Yeah. Uh, so it's not like, you know, you asked earlier if I joined, uh, if I enlisted with the intention of eventually becoming an officer. I mean, it certainly was in the back of my mind, but that wasn't part of any kind of master plan on my, uh, on my part. I, I knew it would come when the time was right. Mm -hmm. uh, my, uh, when I got to Wilford Hall as my first assignment, it so happened that my director of medical logistics, under which uh, medical maintenance falls, my director of medical logistics was himself a prior enlisted BMET who became a medical service corps officer. Uh, and when he reviewed my personal package, he saw you know, my educational background, everything else. He says, I want to work with you. You know, I want to I want to make you a medical service corps officer, an MSC, just like myself. Nice. And uh, I deployed with him. I did some did some uh, MSC shadowing with him uh, and I wanted to emulate you know you know sort of following in his footsteps as it were yeah that is that is really cool uh, that that someone would do that mm -hmm. that would just grab you and say I'm taking you under my wing and uh, we're gonna get you there uh, that that is the definition of of awesome leadership in my opinion so that's cool mentorship and uh career development professional development personal development those are uh very important within the air force um it's uh, it's been said so much that it's kind of like a cliche but it's no less true for all that uh people are the air force's most valuable asset uh, we have a technological edge in our hardware but that that edge is you know only as as current as uh, you know, our science and uh, science and technology, and it's really it's the people who use it, uh, the quality of the people, um, not just. And, and I don't mean our people are you know born geniuses or anything like that. It's because uh, we take quality people and we invest in them, we yeah. develop them, we 
uh, help them to rise to their level um, to to their level of their uh, potential. Yeah, um, a lot of other nations' militaries don't take the time to do that. Don't take don't develop the, their people to their fullest potential. Mm-hmm. Now, like I said earlier, the Air Force paid for me to attend the conference that I just attended this. Yeah, week. and that's a it was a not an insignificant sum of money, but that that was a deliberate decision by the Air Force to invest in me uh, because. I, I'm good at what I do and the Air Force wants to make me that much better. Yeah. Yeah. And that's contrary to what people might think that we just, uh, go onto a base and march around. Um, you know, that that's demystifying right there. Right. So they are investing in their people and it's not, uh, uh sorry to cut you off if you're no. about to say something else. It's, uh, also a myth that, you know, the military, um, just sucks people in, chews them up and spits them out. Um, that, that is, that's not the case. The military wants to retain you. Yeah. Uh, the military wants to invest in you. They want you, f- not everyone's going to make a full 20 years out of it. Uh, some people will separate early in that and that's fine, but the military wants to invest in those people who are going to make it the long haul because, uh, it take, it costs a lot of money, frankly, to bring somebody into the air force. Having spent yes. that money, we, we, we want to keep you. We, we want you to be better and better and better, uh, at what you do. Yeah, that's why it's inspire, retain. Mm-hmm. Some uh, I just had um, a guest on. We were talking about this that sometimes people forget about that middle part: inspire, retain, and engage. So yeah, we want to keep our people. Um, so once you became an officer, uh, once you went to officer training school, and uh, you said you were an MSC, is that is was that the case? Did you become a a medical officer? That's correct. The Air Force officer corps, for lack of a better term, is divided into, I guess, in two main ways. You have your line of the Air Force, uh, which is your pilots, your intelligence officers, your force support officers, your logistics officers, uh, and I guess, broadly speaking, everybody else, your chaplains, your uh, all your medical officers. Um, there are several different cores, different flavors of medics. If you want to think of it that way, there's the medical core, which is your physicians, uh, nurse core and dental core, which are self-explanatory, uh, biomedical sciences core, which is all your allied health professionals, your optometry, audiology, pharmacy, stuff like that. And, uh, medical service core, which is your healthcare administrators. So we call ourselves MSCs for Medical Service Corps uh, on the civilian side. That's healthcare, uh, healthcare executive, health healthcare administrator. Okay, uh, and that's the event that I was attending this week is the American College of Healthcare Executives uh, annual conference. Wow, that's that's amazing. And did you stay in the same location, or did you have to did you have to move from San Antonio? I had to move. I don't know if that's. Uh, a policy that's written down somewhere, but I'm not aware of anyone who goes from enlisted to officer and comes right back to where where they were previously stationed. So from Lackland, I went to Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama for officer training school. And then from there, I went to my first assignment as an MSC, which was then Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland, just outside of D.C. Now it's all part of a joint base. Yeah. Awesome. And how was the di- how was the change from going to an enlisted biomed to now becoming an officer in the medical service corps, it was a bit of an adjustment. Yeah, um, and I, I don't mean just for the obvious reasons, like uh, you know, the uniform corps of military justice says you know there's a 
there's a crime that's unique to the military. It's called fraternization. You know, mm-hmm. officers aren't enlisted aren't supposed to. Uh, there, there are things we're not supposed to do. That we're not supposed to, uh, you know, gamble together, cohabitate, uh, date one another, et cetera. There's the kind of that artificial divide between officers and enlisted. And that, uh, you know, that, that was the easy part. Uh, the hard part, I think, for me, which is the pitfall that a lot of people fall into when they uh, move from one spe- one position to another, is the temptation to do your previous job. Mm. And this is something that I found myself guilty of at multiple times, including when I first took over command here at the uh, here at the three forty eighth. I uh, uh, nearly fell into the pitfall of trying to do really in the weeds tactical level stuff. Yeah, because that's the kind of stuff that I was doing in previous assignments. That's the kind of stuff I knew how to do really well. Uh, but that's no longer my job as a as a squadron commander. I got people for that. Uh, yeah, you know, if you want, uh, <laughs> for lack of a better term. So when I first got to Andrews Air Force Base as a Medical Service Corps officer, uh, my first uh, rotation was within. Uh, logistics uh, facility management specifically and there was that temptation to get really in the weeds and really dive in with all the medical logistics work that I was familiar with and all the uh, facility maintenance work and the BMET uh, work which is all part of that uh, the organization I was in the temptation was for me to dive in and really get involved in that stuff and until I realized that no that's not my job anymore yeah my job is to be the officer in charge of all all of it i need to let the other airmen do their jobs and not hover over their shoulder and try to you know try to yep. uh, guide them with a hundred foot long screwdriver <laughs> i had a very hard challenge with that now if if the people that are listening don't understand the air force has a promotion system to where you know based off of whether it's time and service or testing or promotion boards you you go up in the ranks of the enlisted grades. And with that comes added responsibility, uh, more money and uh, new challenges is what I like to say is. And, and, and I had a hard time with that because when you get up to a certain rank, um, you have to hand over that day to day tactical level stuff. And, and then you have to learn how to empower other people to do it. Uh, I had a really hard time because I was just like, Oh, my way is, you know, I just, I'll just do it, you know, it, and you have to be able to teach people how to do things, let them fail so they can learn um, and trust, but verify. Uh, and I had a difficult time doing that to, to not be hands on because I had a certain way. And I actually got um, one of my flight chiefs back when I was in air transportation. I was out there and I was a, a tech sergeant and I was sweeping I was sweeping because I just, I, I was like, I I like to sweep. I like to get things cleaned up. And he brought me in and said, you can't, you, you can have other people do that. You have to teach them that they can do those things and and empower them and and explain why they're doing these things. And I'm, it's, it was hard for me to be like, ah, I can just do it, you know? So uh, I can see where you're coming at uh, from, from going, especially from going from an enlisted to an officer. Now you're, overseeing and you're more of a management position right so that that can be a that can tend to be a little difficult at times so well i mean we were talking about you know developing people earlier uh that's part of letting people develop is providing them with the oversight providing them with the resources and the guidance that they might need but ultimately 
letting them do it on their own. You, yep. you know, otherwise you're you're infantilizing them. If you're uh, if you're doing the, their job for them, they never develop. Yeah, uh, into future leaders in their own right. Yeah, yeah. We had a uh, I had a guest on the podcast, and they said that one of one of their uh, pieces of advice was um, not to do everything. Or or her her exact words were become replaceable. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, obviously that has a negative connotation, but it really, when she explained what she meant, it's exactly that it's, is don't become the person that nobody else can be. Share your wisdom, share what you can do, uh, to other people. So not only can they grow, but you can also have time to be able to not be the go-to all the time and, and be able to do things like, uh, you know, education and, and self-improvement and stuff like that. So yeah, uh, teaching people is, is, is a very rewarding thing, but sometimes it can be tough to let go a little bit. Definitely. Uh, Train your own replacement is the other way I've heard that phrase. Yes, exactly. Yes. So now what I want to do, uh, Lieutenant Colonel is I want to, uh, talk about your current position. Um, because, um, you said that you were in command of a recruiting squadron. Now, what kind of recruiting squadron is this? This, uh, the 348th is a little bit different from the squadron you serve in, the 347th. Uh, we are all part of the same recruiting group. Uh, that's the 372nd recruiting group, which is uh, the group that owns all recruiting that's in the Western U.S. and the Pacific Rim. Uh, that area is subdivided into eight zones, and there's a an enlisted a sessions recruiting squadron like the 347th that uh, operates in each of those eight zones. Mm-hmm. There's also so that's eight enlisted session squadrons in the group. There's also a ninth one, it's the 348th, my unit, uh, that operates in the entire zone covered by that group. So from Chicago to Hawaii, wow, uh, and the and the Pacific Rim, uh, you know, from Seattle to Phoenix. Uh, and uh, we recruit officers. So specifically, we do officer accessions. Okay. So does that, now that includes all the cores that you were talking about, the the medical core, is that the health profession side as well? Correct. There are two major missions uh, that my squadron handles, and that's the LO mission, line officer. So uh, what I talked about, uh, the, the intelligence officers for support personnelists, pilots, uh, air battle managers, uh, and the health professions, which is all those cores are listed. Wow. Uh, we don't recruit chaplains and we don't recruit, uh, lawyers. So Jack, okay. judge advocate general, uh, we, uh, we su- support various portions of that process, but we, uh, that's not part of our mission per se. Wow. So you have a very large geographical area that one squadron is covering. How many people, uh, are a part of this, the 348th? I have about 85 people, give or take, you know, it, uh, it, the number, uh, the exact number very, uh, goes up and down as people transfer in, transfer out, people retire, new ones come in. Uh, it's a, it's about 85 to 90, uh, personnel subdivided into a headquarters element, which is located just outside of Hill Air Force Base, Utah and eight recruiting flights. Okay. And those eight flights more or less align with the eight enlisted accession squadrons. 
like the 347th is uh, headquartered here in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Just down the highway, I have my Bravo flight, my B flight, uh, just outside of Chicago. Um, and most of my other flights are more or less aligned with a with an enlisted accession squadron as well. Nice. But yeah, uh, unlike your, uh, you know, what most people think of when they think of recruiting, they think of, you know, the, the office in a strip mall or something like that. Where yeah. You can go and walk in and see your recruiter. We, uh, on officer sessions, we have very little walk-in traffic because all of our offices are hubs. We're located at, you know, in nine different places around the, uh, around the entire Western U.S. And uh, some of those flights, they cover gigantic, yeah. uh, gigantic areas, you know, tens of thousands of square miles. Uh, one of my flights, you know, might cover four or five different states. Wow. So they don't get a ton of walk-in traffic at their office. A lot of it is virtual. Yeah. I know that as recruiters in a geographically separated unit and having our recruiting offices not here at the headquarters, that that can be a challenging thing. Um, I can only imagine uh, the challenges that you face as a squadron commander um, for having flights that are so far apart. Um, how do you manage that those challenges uh, as the leader? Salt Lake City Airport is a Delta hub. And my unit has a fairly large travel budget, what we call a <laughs> TDY budget. And um, it's a whole lot of time spent in the air visiting yeah. my offices. Uh, for example, I'm in town, I'm in, I was in Chicago the first part of this week attending my conference. I'm taking the opportunity to swing by the 347th today and uh, you, you'd be here with you. Tomorrow, I'm going to be back in Naperville, just outside of Chicago, visiting with the my bravo flight uh team down there and then uh skip a week after that i'm going to be traveling to omaha nebraska to visit my alpha flight uh, which is just uh just outside of off air force base wow etc etc yeah so a lot of traveling then correct i'm a i'm a delta sky miles uh, platinum medallion member (laughs) uh, at this point yeah wow and now do you have a family of your own i do uh, I have a wife, Brandy, whom uh, I met when I was at Shepard. So we met nice. in the Air Force. Uh, we were both attending medical tech training. She, uh, I was studying to be a BMET. She was studying to be uh, what's called a 4-H, uh, respiratory therapist. Uh, so that's when we first met. Um, we were friends at Shepard. And then we were both stationed at Lackland Air Force Base nice. as our first assignment. That's when we started dating. Uh, and then we got married uh, shortly before I uh, uh, crossed over I, yeah. before I became a commissioned officer. That's awesome. And I have three boys. Three boys. Um, wow. We're done, we're done. We're done at three. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. I have, I have two girls and a boy. Um, but I can imagine the house is pretty, pretty crazy with three boys. So they, uh, uh they can be, uh, they can be a handful, but they are the absolute, uh, joy of our lives. And oh, yeah. uh, that's what it's all about, right? They're the Absolutely. ones that are, Absolutely. Um, uh, they're the ones that are there uh, that are going to keep it going that, that they're who I'm doing it all for. Yeah, for sure. So with the challenges of traveling a lot, how, how's the family handling that, that dad's not there? I mean, it's not, obviously it's not great. We're, yeah. you know, we're we don't love it. Uh, but it's not like we don't have practice. I, uh, 
uh, in my previous assignments, I deployed a lot. Mm-hmm. I was in um, I was in special operations for seven years before coming to the uh, to the squadron. Um, deployed roughly every once a year. So, wow, you know, four, four, three to four months out of the year. Uh, a lot of time spent away. Uh, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my least favorite memories, you know, it's it's heartwarming but heartbreaking, uh, is uh, when I was leaving for one of my deployments, and my currently my middle son was then our youngest, and he was about two, and you know, mom was driving us all to the airport so they could say goodbye, and you know, I had all my my duffel bags, I'm heading off for deployment. And, you know, it's all, it's all fun. You know, we're going to the airport. Yay. It's exciting. And then, um, as I was getting out of the car, you know, at the, at the curbside, uh, I think it all sank in and yeah, like I said, he's two, uh, it, it, it sank in and he just teared up and he goes, bye bye daddy. And, oh, oh gosh. Man, it got me right in the heart. Yeah, that is, I, I, so I deployed a couple of years ago, uh, and my I just had the two at the time and it was very hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was my first deployment with, with children. Uh, So it was, it was difficult to be away. Um, But knowing that, that we're, we're serving like a higher purpose Mm -hmm. um, and doing good. um, You're, and just having the support of your family, you know, it may not be great, but them being there knowing, Hey, home is here when you get home. Uh, that just makes it everything worth it. So it is much better here if you only have to leave for a couple of days mm-hmm. at a time. It's, and that's why I tell my wife too. I just, I just got back out of, from being out of town for a couple of days and yeah, I miss my kids dearly, but I was like, just remember it's, it's not a deployment, you know, it's only a couple of days. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I definitely understand. There's uh in my current position, there's a lot of back to back travel. Like, uh, I, I started my current travel cycle about mid-February and I should be done around mid to late May but mm. every week or every other week I'm going yeah. some, someplace different yeah it, it, it's rough it's hard on the family um, the only consolation is that Brandy's used to it my wife yeah. and she, 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 she she's got it I mean if anything she's jealous that I get to travel so much <laughs> uh, but yeah oh, she's she's already she's had time to form those coping mechanisms and she can she can run the house yeah and and thank god for her yeah the the spouses are the real mvps um i will say that from experience my wife carla she's i mean it's so nice to be able to not necessarily leave um and leave them but know that everything is taken care of when i'm gone definitely Um, it, it can help us stay in tune with what we're trying to do and accomplish while we're gone so it's great so, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit real quick about kind of the day in the life of a squadron commander. So I know you're doing a lot of traveling, but what are some of your responsibilities as a squadron commander for the 348th? The way I put it to, uh, to the members of my unit, um, and I've, I've said this, uh, and more or less in the same words multiple times and hopefully, uh, hopefully they believe me. I genuinely view my job as making it so that they can do their jobs. Uh, my uh, people hear commander, and you know they might uh, that might conjure up the image of a you know the the, the manager sitting there on the factory floor uh, yelling out instructions, telling people what to do, and that is not one hundred percent not what I'm doing. Yeah, if I were to try and do that, 
uh, our mission or grad to a standstill because uh, I am not a professional recruiter. The mm-hmm. members of my unit are. If I try to tell them how to do recruiting, we will fail. Yeah. Uh, my job is to get them the resources. That means, you know, whether that means money, whether that means, uh, you know, vehicles so they can travel around and do school visits. Uh, it's to give them um, guidance. Uh, it's to advocate for them with higher headquarters. It's to give them the freedom of, freedom of action so they can do the jobs that they already know how to do. Uh, you know, I might give them strategic direction. I might say, you know, what we need to focus, we need to focus our efforts in this direction or in this direction. Unlike, uh, unlike an enlisted sessions uh, where, you know, your job is to bring people in, in for yeah. basic training and officer sessions. We have 18 different gold programs. Wow. Uh, so uh, we, uh, d- at different times of the year, we have to focus our areas on different things, whether it's medical schools, it's nursing schools, it's dental schools. Uh, you know, in the spring, obviously, uh, you got all the college graduates getting ready to enter the workforce. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that is one of the big pushes for line officer because you got all those, I shouldn't say kids, but they're kids. Yeah. Uh, to me, I'm 44. <laughs> uh, uh, all the kids getting ready to graduate college and figuring out what they're going to do with their yeah. lives. Uh, kind of like, you know, kids graduating high school. Yeah. Wow. 18 gold programs. Right. That, uh, and, and that's not for the listeners. That is not gold like the stuff you find in the ground. That is stuff that measures if a squadron is making the goal that the Air Force Recruiting Service has given to them. So that's 18 different programs. Right. So, wow. Uh, we, you know, in any given year, uh, it's a, on an annual cycle. In any given year, we might be responsible for recruiting this many doctors and this many nurses and this many pilots, et cetera. Jeez. Uh, so those are individual goals. Thank you for that, for that yeah. clarification. Yeah, no. But to, uh, to address your, uh, to finish answering your question, uh, day in the life of a squadron commander, I mean, there's, there's no one day that's exactly like any other day. This mm-hmm. week I'm in Chicago attending a conference. You know, next week I'm going to be in my headquarters and all of, uh, all of the flight chiefs are coming in from their locations. They're going to be at our headquarters. We're conducting what's called a leadership engagement meeting, an LEM. So all the flight chiefs are going to be talking about flight chief stuff. Yeah. Um, and their supervisor, the, our production superintendent, is, good, is you know has the lead on that one. I'll just be in the corner looking pretty. <laughs> um, I of course there's you know a daily barrage of emails. Of course. And, uh, one of the first leadership lessons that I had to learn was not to confuse answering emails with doing my job. Yeah. Uh, email emails is what I do after. I'm done doing my job. My job is to be the advocate for the members, for the Dragon Slayers, the members of the 348th Recruiting Squadron. Uh, be their advocate, be their be their guide, be their uh, be their cover, be their top cover. Uh, yeah, you know that's a um, there's a there's an expression. I'm sure uh, I'm sure you've heard it before. You know, a certain substance rolls downhill. Yep. <laughs> uh, right. So that's that's a way of being a leader. Uh, it's not my way. My way is I'm try to I try to prevent as much of that substance from reaching the people below me sure. as I can. So it's um, you know receiving taskings and then figuring out uh, is this something that we 
need to do, in which case, who's going to do it and I assign that task appropriately? Uh, or is this something that we need to defer until a future date? Or is this something I need to push back on and say, hey, this makes no sense? Yeah. Um, the way, the way you're asking me to do this. And obviously there's a right and a wrong way to provide that response. I'm not just going to tell my boss, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I, I don't have the, I don't yeah. have the option of doing that, but, uh, there's a professional way to have that conversation and say, well, maybe we should do it this way, or maybe we shouldn't do this because X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And that's just, I guess that's, that's part of the, uh, the, the, the hard to quantify process that brought me to where I am, but you know, it's picking up, uh, picking up the, uh, the, 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 the maturity and the, the understanding to, to know the difference, you know, the, yeah. kind of the serenity prayer, except the things I cannot change. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. So, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Campbell, there's a couple questions, uh, that I'd like to ask you before we wrap things up. Okay. Uh, the first one, uh, I, and I love this, the love this question. That's why I ask it to every single person is throughout your 20 years of service in the air force. What is some of the best advice or mentorship that you have received that you will take with you for the rest of your life? There's so much good stuff, but, uh, if I had to pick one, uh, it is this, and that is a piece of advice that I got from a, from an army officer, uh, with whom I, uh, I served in a joint unit that I was previously assigned at. Uh, he, um, call him Joe, uh, just for clarity. Uh, so Joe had just attended the retirement ceremony of one of his army buddies. And there's an army buddy who, um, had been there and done that, you know, he deployed a thousand times. He'd been in, had been in combat, the whole thing, uh, gave his life figuratively speaking to the army. And, um, there was virtually nobody at his retirement mm. or, or sorry. The only people who were at his retirement were his other colleagues. Wow. He was divorced from his wife. He was estranged from his children. Uh, and uh, what Joe told me after that, he described the situation to me. And he said, it doesn't matter how much you love the army. And he's talking about the army, but you can insert Air Force if you will. It doesn't matter how much you love the army. The army does not love you back. Uh, sooner or later, she will dump you <laughs> and she will find somebody younger. And when that day comes the only people that are going to be there for you are your, are your family. Yeah. And I don't mean that in a negative way, like the air force is, like I said, it, it, it's not that the air force is going to chew you up and spit you out, but our time in uniform is limited of necessity. Yep. There will come a day when we will separate or retire. And when they, t when that day comes, our family has to be there for us. Mm -hmm. So the piece of advice I would say is dedicate yourself to the mission, but don't give your life to the mission. Uh, we talked about the importance of the spouses and the family support earlier in, um, in, in this podcast. You got to invest in your family uh, because they need to be there for you yeah. when uh, uh, when your time in, uh, in the Air Force is done. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, the last question I have for you, sir, is we'll do a little role playing here. I am a brand new airman. I just walked through the gateway of Lackland Air Force Base, um, got my airman's coin, and I'm ready to go, ready to start my journey. If I had the opportunity to sit down with Lieutenant Colonel Kambalov, what kind of advice would you have for that brand new airman? Well, first thing I'd say is congratulations. The second thing I'd say is uh, I walked through the same gateway 20 years ago, back when it was hard. And the third thing I'd say is 
uh, keep your eyes open for uh, for opportunities because uh, I've been in the Air Force for 20 years. I don't know half the opportunities that are out there. <laughs> uh, I said earlier, I didn't plan my career. Every move that I've made has been because an opportunity presented itself um, very frequently with something I didn't even know existed before. Um, you know, take my current assignment, for example. I knew recruiting existed as a as a function within the Air Force. Yeah. But I had no idea how it was organized. Uh, less so did I have any idea that recruiting squadron command was was an opportunity that was out there for me until that opportunity presented itself. And I said, absolutely, I want to I want to give that a yeah. try. Uh, I mean, that sounds awesome. Uh, and every other career move I've made, um, you know, in the 20 years prior. So keep your eyes open, love your job, you know, grow where you're planted, but don't, uh, you know, every now and again, look up and look around and see what opportunities are presenting themselves. Um, and if something sounds great, try, um, yeah. you know, worst they'll tell you is no, right? Yeah. But, uh, man, you don't want to find yourself at the end of a 20 year career and realize, man, I wish I'd done X. Uh, not you know, if I'd known then what I know now, right? Yeah, absolutely. That is awesome advice. Uh, it, and this has been absolutely wonderful. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Campbell, I'm, I'm super happy that I had the opportunity to catch you in your very, very busy schedule. Um, I feel honored that, that you took the time out of your schedule to come up here, uh, to sit down and talk. And I think that the listeners will appreciate, uh, hearing your story. So again, I thank you very much for coming on. Oh, geez, uh, sorry, check, man. You, you're making me blush. Uh, <laughs> no, this is absolutely um, a pleasure and a privilege to do it. I uh, thank you for creating this platform. Uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about myself, my favorite topic, uh, <laughs> and uh, hopefully to help demystify the Air Force a little bit. And speaking of demystifying the Air Force just a little bit, I know you've had several other, um, we'll call them distinguished visitors on your podcast. You've had Colonel Knight, the squadron commander. You've had Chief Goldstrom, Chief Toberman, General Thomas. Uh, so I'm sure you're no stranger to this custom, but maybe uh, your listeners aren't familiar with it, uh, the custom of the round metal object. Oh, okay. Uh, so yes. the round metal object is a fancy term for, uh, for coin. And the reason we say RMO is to distinguish, you know, from legal tender kind of coin. Yes. And the, uh, the nature of the, of the custom is that if you and your friends find yourself in a, in an establishment, let's say that serves a particular type of beverage, <laughs> um, somebody may issue a challenge. Yes. Normally you issue that challenge through placing a round metal object on the, on the nearby horizontal surface. I'll let I'll let listeners fill in the blanks here. And it is then up to the other members of the group to rise to that challenge. And uh, whoever fails to do so uh, has to purchase liquid refreshments for the rest of the team. Yeah. Uh, now, you can go to any any clothing you know, clothing store on base, you know, on a military installation, and you can buy your own, your own coins. Yeah. Uh, but the tradition within the military is... Uh, that uh, coins are presented for uh, outstanding performance. And I think uh, running, you know, starting this podcast and then running this podcast and creating this platform for all of us to help demystify 
the Air Force uh, to the American public, I think that definitely rises to the level of an achievement that's worth recognizing with a round metal object. Uh, so we're not, uh, we won't do it on, on mic, but uh, I'll be presenting you with one as soon as we wrap up. Here. Wow. Thank you very much. That is awesome. I appreciate that. It's well-deserved. That is great. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this has been an awesome experience. Um, Lieutenant Colonel Kamilov, again, thank you for, for coming on. And uh, I appreciate you being here. Thank you very much for the opportunity. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Lieutenant Colonel Alexei Kambalov. And this is the Air Power Hour. Take care, friends. Mm-hmm.